Morning, church. It's wonderful to worship the Lord with you. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. As you've probably noticed, I rarely begin my messages with an opening illustration, and I know the conventional wisdom is that preachers are supposed to start with kind of a catchy story to grab your attention, and uh, lots of preachers do that really exceptionally well. Uh, I've always struggled to do that. I'm not very good at it. I you know, listen to Chuck Swindoll, the master illustrator, and wish I had a little bit of his giftedness, but the other reason that I rarely do opening illustrations is I'm just so excited to get into the passage that I rarely can think of a story that would be worth five minutes of the time, and um, so I tend to just want to dive in. So I rarely do it, um, and when I use an opening illustration, I want to use it when it's something that really drives home the point of the passage we're about to study, and uh, it's not very often that I find one like that, but this week I did. I found an opening illustration which is so powerful and so good, drives home the point of the passage so well that I decided to start with it. I just had to do it. And it's an illustration which I've borrowed from a very famous sermon uh, preached a very long time ago, and the illustration is called The Song of the Vineyard, and it goes something like this. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. But briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the man of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness but behold a cry of distress that of course was Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7 and when an inspired prophet supplies his own illustration to the passage you're about to preach on you use it and you don't need to find one on your own or add your own the song of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7 is an opening illustration for Isaiah's message that he's going to preach in the rest of chapter 5. And since this is an inspired illustration, let's take a closer look at it before we dive into the message itself. Notice in chapter 5, verse 1, that the song begins with Isaiah's affirmation of his love for God. Verse 1 says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Three times in 
the opening verse, Isaiah affirms his love for God. He loves the Lord. And this threefold expression of his love for God in verse 1 creates a contrast then with the nation's rejection of God. They ignore God, they spurn God, they reject God. And Isaiah, one who loves the Lord, is heartbroken over this. Notice next in verse 2 that Isaiah points out that God had abundantly blessed Israel, provided them with everything they needed to be spiritually fruitful, and therefore expected a good harvest. Verse 2, he dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it. In other words, he's listing everything that a good vineyard owner would and could do for a vineyard. He did it all, everything that could possibly be done for the vineyard, the Lord did. But instead of producing good grapes, verse 2 says, it produced worthless ones. It says, he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Those good grapes are defined in verse 7 as righteousness and justice. And the worthless ones that the vineyard actually produced are identified in verse 7 as bloodshed and cries of distress. So instead of justice and righteousness, the vineyard produced bloodshed and distressed cries. In verse 2, when he says that he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones, that word translated worthless here is closely related to a Hebrew term which means to stink, to produce a foul odor. So an Old Testament scholar, one Old Testament scholar says the term literally means stink fruit. They should have produced the choicest fruit. The word for good fruit there is, is a word which is used of the, most, of the most expensive, best type of grape that is grown in that part of the world. That's what should have been produced, but instead, it produced stink fruit. This last week, we bought a bag of oranges and you know, pulled the one off the top, and it was delicious couple days later reached into the bag to grab another one and my fingers just sunk right into it you ever experienced that so on the outer part of the bag where we, you know all of them looked good but one in the middle that you couldn't see was rotten and when I pulled it out you could smell it that's what was happening he expected good fruit but he got rotten foul smelling stink fruit so in verse 3, God calls for the case to be brought to court. Remember, he's often using this court motif throughout the book. And verse 3 says, Oh, now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. You be the judge, he says. Is this right? That though I've given them everything they need to produce good fruit, they have produced rotten stink fruit. Verse 4, God asked rhetorically, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Is it my fault, he's saying? Did I fail to do something for the vineyard? Oh no, he says. No, no, I, I planted it on a fertile hill. I removed the stones. I built 
a hedge to protect. I built a wall. I hewed out a wine vat. I did everything necessary and everything possible for this vineyard. He says, why then, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? God had not withheld any blessings. He'd not failed to meet any needs. He had not failed to give them everything they needed to produce the fruit of righteousness. By the way, a similar thought is found in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, which says, His divine power has given to us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Ancient Israel had no excuse for not producing good fruit and neither do we. God has given us everything we need to live godly, fruitful lives and so we have no excuses if we are producing stink fruit instead of good fruit. Oftentimes when someone is really cascaded down into sin, they'll make all sorts of excuses. You know, if I had better parents, I wouldn't be this way. If I had better circumstances, I wouldn't be this way. If other people treated me better, I wouldn't be this way. In other words, they're saying, look, it's not my fault that I'm producing stink fruit. Friends, the word of God says that he has given to us everything we need to live a godly life. In other words, if your vineyard is producing stink fruit, you need to ask this question. God is saying to you, what more is there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? He gave you his indwelling Holy Spirit. He gave you his holy word. He gave you a community of believers what more can he do for you so that you'll produce the fruit of righteousness in your life? Do you live in a fallen world? Yes. Are other people perfect? No. But the Lord, as Second Peter says, by his divine power has given to you everything you need to live a godly life through your knowledge of him who called you by his own glory and goodness. Don't blame God for your stink fruit. The Lord didn't accept that excuse from them. He won't accept it from us. So in verses five through six, the Lord pronounces judgment on the vineyard. So now let me tell you what I'm gonna do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall. It will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it says this is going to produce thorns and thistles that's a flashback to Genesis chapter 3 where the curse that God gives on the earth is that it will produce thorns and thistles the curse is going to be in full force some of these judgments are things God is going to do through the hands of men he's going to remove the hedge break down the wall people will stop cultivating it they'll trample it but lest we think this is something human beings are doing, God makes sure we know it's something he's doing because he says at the end of verse six, I will charge the clouds not to rain on it. I will give a command and the clouds won't drop rain on this vineyard anymore. This is divine judgment and it's gonna be carried out 
both by the hands of men and then through nature itself. Well, what is this illustration talking about? Verse 7 explains it. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his delightful plant. Thus, he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, cries of distress. God had planted Israel in the Holy Land, given them extraordinary, extraordinary blessings, and he expected them to produce righteousness and justice, but instead they produced worthless grapes of bloodshed and distress. Isaiah goes out to share this message, and when he did, the people's ears had to absolutely burn when he shared with them verse 7. In Hebrew, there's a striking play on words in verse 7. He says that instead of producing justice, which is the Hebrew term mishpat, the vineyard had produced bloodshed. That's the similar-sounding Hebrew term mispach. And then, instead of producing righteousness, which is the Hebrew term tzedakah, the vineyard produced cries of distress, se'aka. See, he's telling them, look, God has provided for you, protected you, planted you in the promised land. He therefore rightly expects you to produce a harvest of righteousness and justice. But instead of mishpat, he found mispach. Instead of tzedakah, he found se'aka. And their ears had to absolutely burn as these contrasting words are thrust together. Instead of righteousness, bloodshed. Instead of justice, distressed cries. The Lord of the vineyard came to examine the fruit and what did he find? The exact opposite of what should have been there. They were supposed to be a choice vine which produced the best fruit, but instead they had become a society of sour grapes. How did they get there? How did the vineyard go so downhill? What led to their decline? How did this disaster begin? And then, because the New Testament says that what was written about Israel in the past was written for our encouragement and as an example to us, what lessons then can we draw from this sad episode in the history of ancient Israel? Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 through 30 is going to provide us with some striking and insightful answers to the question, what went wrong? And as we draw examples and lessons from them, we're going to learn about what is going wrong in our day. So when we look at their situation, we're going to see that there were three major factors which led to ancient Israel's downfall. And as we study the three factors which led to their downfall, we're going to see that those same three factors are present in our society right now, here and today. And so Isaiah chapter 5 is going to give us an ancient diagnosis of a modern problem. Scripture says there is nothing new under the sun. What's happening today is coming from the same causes that happened back in Old Testament times. Now, the specific ways that societal degradation manifests itself in a given time 
and a given place can change, but the underlying causes, the ideologies and the issues of the heart, the manifestations of human nature which caused that degradation are nothing new. So by studying the downfall of ancient Israel, we can learn valuable lessons for our own culture and context, and we can learn what's going wrong and what to do about it. In this chapter, Isaiah identifies three major causes of ancient Israel's spiritual downfall. Three major causes of ancient Israel's spiritual downfall. Number one, individualistic materialism produced isolation. Number two, immersive merriment produced ignorance. And number three, inverted moralism produced iniquity. We're gonna cover the first one this week and then we'll cover the next two in the weeks to come. The downfall of ancient Israel began when individualistic materialism produced isolation. Look at Isaiah chapter five, verses eight through 10. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. For 10 acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field. I want to begin by asking a kind of a big picture question. Is Isaiah rebuking them simply for being wealthy? Is this a anti-rich diatribe? Is this passage teaching that wealth itself is evil? I think Alex Moitier answers this question astutely when he observes that, quote, the Old Testament does not condemn or despise wealth, but appraises how it was acquired and how it is used. Looking at the big picture of Old Testament teaching on finances, the Old Testament never condemns wealth, but it does evaluate how wealth is acquired and then how wealth is used. God cares how you acquire and how you use the financial resources of this world. The problem Isaiah was addressing here wasn't that they were wealthy, it's that they had obtained their wealth unethically and illegally. And then they used their wealth to indulge in wickedness and to oppress the poor. In other words, the downfall of ancient Israel began when individual greed created a culture of individualistic materialism. I want to show you this in the text. The phrase in verse 8, adding house to house. What does that mean when he says, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field? Well, this is something very specific to their context. Back in those days, 
you typically have a piece of land. It's an agrarian culture, and so you'd build a house. A husband and wife would build a house, and they'd raise their children there. When their children were old enough to get married, oftentimes they would build a second house as an addition onto the first. And that's how the land could accommodate multiple generations. It wouldn't be wrong for one generation to build a house and the next generation to build the house next to it and add on generation by generation. That's not what they were doing. The same generation was adding house to house to house for themselves. These were additions. They kept building bigger and bigger homes, adding on and adding on and adding on until they created palaces. Not content with just more house, they joined field to field. They were purchasing additional lots of land and joining another lot of land to their lot and then another and then another and another until they had acquired these huge estates with palaces in the middle. And notice that the text says they kept expanding until there was no more room. They didn't stop when they had met the point of need. They didn't stop when they had met the point of want. They kept going until there was nothing left to buy until there was no more room. They just kept acquiring and acquiring and they went from need to greed. They went from moderation to excess and they kept going literally until they couldn't buy anything else, until everything had been snatched up. Well, what was happening to the poor in this context? As the rich added house to house and field to field, the poor were being squeezed into smaller and smaller scraps of land in between the huge estates of the wealthy. And the Lord was displeased by this. And to understand why he was so displeased, we need to remember that when the Lord rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land, he gave each tribe, each clan, and each family line an allotment of land so that no one would be in need. This was his land. And he brings them into his land and he gives them each an inheritance in his land so that no one would be in need. And that land given to each tribe, clan, and family was supposed to be passed down from generation to generation permanently so that each successive generation would be able to raise crops and raise their children and thrive in the land. Each tribe, each clan, each family of Israel had their own land and territorial boundaries. And they were not allowed to expand onto their neighbor's territorial inheritance. In fact, one of the things that the Old Testament says is an abomination to the Lord would be to remove the boundary stones. The markers between your territory that the Lord had given to your family as an inheritance and your neighbor's. That was forbidden in the law. I want to read to you from Leviticus chapter 25 verses 23 through 27. Listen to what the Lord says. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. 
for the land is mine for you are but aliens and sojourners with me see the Lord owns the whole land and he's going to give an allotment or an inheritance to each of the children of Israel he continues thus for every piece of your property you are to provide for the redemption of the land if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold or in case a man has no kinsman but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom it was sold and so return to his property but if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser listen until the year of jubilee but at the jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property so if someone got into economic distress and you know they needed some cash for some reason they could sell a portion of their land to someone and that other person could you know raise a few harvests of crops but that land had to be repurchased by its ancestral owner by a relative of that ancestral owner or at the end of seven years every year of jubilee it had to revert to its original owner whether it was paid back or not why because the lord wanted each family to have their own land to be able to raise their children and raise crops this was the law and Leviticus 25 and other passages in the Mosaic Law help us understand why Isaiah and the other prophets, prophets so strongly rebuke the greed, the corruption, and the oppression of the poor which was taking place in Israel. Wealthy land barons were acting as if the Holy Land belonged to them and not to God. The rulers acted as if the land belonged to them and not to God. And they acted as if God had not set boundaries on their expansion. But he had. And they transgressed those boundaries. They were breaking the law by crossing tribal boundaries and by ignoring the laws that God had put in place in order to protect the weak and to provide for the poor. And the result was that the poor, especially the orphans and the widows, were being robbed of their ancestral inheritances by corrupt officials who were paid bribes by the wealthy. The orphan, who is too young to be able to defend his own rights in court, had the right for his father's land to be his but these wealthy land barons would go to court and they would pay a bribe to get corrupt officials to deed the land over to them permanently in direct violation of God's law thus defrauding the orphan and the widow and leaving them destitute with nothing this is condemned throughout the prophets look back in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 23 it says your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Chapter 3, verse 13. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. 
And he, what does he tell him? He says, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the God of hosts, the Lord of the heavenly armies. See, when you paid that bribe and you stole the land from that orphan, you forgot he does have a dad. He has a heavenly father. And his heavenly father is the Lord of armies, the heavenly hosts. And he now arises to contend with you who have acquired wealth by grinding the faces of the poor into the dust. In chapter 5, verse 23, he says, Woe to those who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. The orphans and the widows are saying, Wait a minute. At the year of Jubilee, the land is supposed to revert to me. And the wicked rulers justified the wicked for a bribe. And they took away the rights of the ones who were in the right. See, legally, the orphans and widows had the right to the land. They were being robbed. They were being robbed. And the Lord arises to contend. Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says this. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn away, turn aside the way of the humble. They were coveting the dust of the earth, that field, that piece of land that belonged to the widow, that belonged to the orphan. They coveted it, they panted after it, and they took it. And they climbed to wealth on the heads and the backs of the orphans and the widows. And God says, no more. Amos chapter 5, verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate. There were people who would stand up in the city gate. That's where all the business would take place. And they would say, this is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. It says, they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The book of Micah similarly rebukes these rich land barons, saying, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. They were literally laying in their beds at night, scheming how they could rob the poor of their lands. How they could take away the last thing the orphan and the widow had. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil in their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them. 
and houses and take them away. They rob a man and his house. They rob a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks. You will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. Verse 9 says, The women of my people you evict, each one from her pleasant house. From her children you take my splendor forever. The Lord's splendor was in his provision for his people. And you are robbing from the widow the splendor of the Lord, his loving care for them. He had provided for them. He'd planted the vineyard. He'd hewn it out and put its boundaries there. And you've taken from his children that which didn't belong to you. Greed had led to corruption and corruption had led to oppression. The individualistic materialism which had taken hold in the society had led to terrible injustices. The sword of greed cut deep. But you know, greed and all other sins are double-edged. They cut both ways. They not only hurt others, but they hurt the person who is sinning. Sin always hurts others, but it also always hurts you. Go back to Isaiah 5 and notice what happened in the lives of these greedy land barons. It says, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. So that, what was the result? What happened to them as a result of this greed? He says, So that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. You have to live alone. You see, the end result of greed is isolation. Greed produces isolation. You wind up living alone. Why does greed isolate people? How does greed isolate people? Well, first of all, greed isolates people relationally. It isolates them relationally. Greedy people trample so many people. They wrong so many people in their pursuit of wealth that they wind up friendless. They burn too many bridges. They hurt too many people. They climb over the backs of too many friends to get to the top. So they wind up alone, friendless. Then maybe there's a few relatives, a few friends that stick around they don't trust those people they're, they're thinking he's only my friend to get my money this cousin of mine only calls me because he wants something from me they suspect those who stay around for greedy people loneliness is the consequence because they alienate so many and trust so few Greedy people are often the loneliest people in the world. The isolation experienced by greedy people is often relational in nature, but sometimes greed isolates people not just relationally, but geographically. Just basic physics. What do I mean? Well, because of their greed, they buy bigger houses with 
bigger yards. And when they live in that bigger and bigger house, they, that bigger house puts more physical distance between them and their family members. The bigger yards put more distance between them and their neighbors. Greedy people don't realize it, but they are exiling themselves into self-made prisons made of expensive walls and well-trimmed hedges. They're living alone in the midst of a big chunk of land. People often think they'll be happier if they have a bigger house with a bigger yard. But when you add house to house and field to field, you wind up living alone. You wind up sleeping down a longer hallway from your loved ones. You sit further apart at dinner because now you have room for a great big table. You do separate activities in separate rooms because now everyone has their own space. You rarely see or chat with your neighbors because they're so far from you. You wind up living alone, isolated by your own wealth. There's been a couple times in our lives where we've had to live in pretty close quarters when we were doing missionary training in Ukraine uh, for every summer for a period of, of several years. We would live in the dorm rooms with the students and each family had just one room, about the size of a normal American bedroom. And each family was in one room, just room after room in these kind of old converted army barracks. So the six of us were Actually, it was the five of us that, from some of those years before Annie was born. We were in one room together. You know, five beds, two little cabinets to put our clothes and nothing else. And through a wall about this thin was another family of six and then another family of five on both sides. And, you know, when you can hear the people next to you sneeze, it uh, means you're living in pretty tight quarters. We were never lonely. And our kids remember it as the best years of their life. When the first Russian invasion happened in 2014 and there was a big refugee flow from the east to the south and western parts of the country where we were at, we had a family, a refugee family of nine come and live with us. So we were, had a 900 square foot apartment. There was the six of us and then the nine of them, 15 people. We were never lonely because we were never alone. <laughs> and again, my kids remember those days with great, um, you know, just the, they love those days. The problem with greed is that it tends to isolate you. And even before the fall of man into sin, God said it's not good for the man to be alone. We're relational beings. We're designed to flourish in the context of community. And Proverbs 18.1 says that he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. You see, when you isolate yourself, when you want to have your own space as far away from everybody else as you possibly can, you, you want to be able to do whatever you want to do. 
You're seeking your own desire. When it's just you in a big room or a big house or down the hall from everybody else or way far away from any neighbors, you can do whatever you want and you don't have to even think about your neighbor. You don't even have to think about your family. You can do what you want to do. And it sounds so nice, doesn't it? But he who separates himself seeks his own desires and what? And quarrels against sound wisdom because you weren't created to live alone. You were created to live in community. You were created to live in the context like some of the old days when I was growing up where it was almost a daily thing where someone came over to our house for a cup of sugar or to borrow some butter and we went over to neighbors' houses and when we were out playing at dinner time, you'd hear 14 different voices crying out saying, Jimmy, Sally, dinner time, come home. Now, years can go by and neighbors don't have any interaction beside maybe a wave on, as you're crossing yourself, each other on the road. We're isolating ourselves. Greed is a form of selfishness, and selfishness separates us from others. And when we are separated from others, we quarrel against sound wisdom. And when we quarrel against sound wisdom, things don't go well. Once individualistic materialism has done its corrosive work of isolating people, the downfall of a society has begun. This is why the American dream of the big house with the big yard has turned into a nightmare for so many people. There they are, in their big house, with their big yard, all alone. Just numbing their loneliness with alcohol or drugs or trying to stay so entertained they don't have time to look around and notice they're all alone. In Israel's case, this individualistic materialism had not only isolated them, but it was causing massive criminal activity, the breaking of God's law, and therefore it had consequences that were stipulated in that law. Isaiah verses. 5 verses 9 through 10 says in my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn surely many houses shall become desolate even great and fine ones will be without occupants 10 acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain you've added field to field to field you now have 10 fields instead of one guess what all of your 10 fields together are only going to produce what your one field would have produced at the beginning you put you, you've spent your life trying to acquire all this God's going to take it away you built the big palace. It's going to be empty. God's going to take away your idol. The words in verse 9 when it says, in my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn, if you're looking at the New American Standard, that the words has sworn are in italics. That's the translators notifying you that they are supplying a verb so that there's a complete sentence in English. In English we have to have a verb so they supply it here, but in Hebrew, you don't need a verb. It just says in Hebrew, in my ears, Yahweh of hosts. Isaiah is saying, the voice of God is ringing in my ears. And what is he saying? He's saying, surely those palaces will be emptied and those fields stolen from the orphans and widows will stop producing. I'm gonna judge. It's a sobering message. 
And Isaiah comes to the people brokenhearted, saying, God's voice is ringing in my ears. Judgment is coming because how you acquired your wealth and what you're using it for is wicked. Gary Smith says, there's a sense of justice here. If they take away other people's homes, God will take their homes. If they steal fields, God will take away the harvest of their fields. In other words, greed always backfires. Those who covet the riches of the world receive only poverty of soul in return. Individualistic materialism promises comfort and pleasure, but produces isolation and emptiness and ultimately judgment. Individualistic materialism led to isolation. And as we're going to see, isolation led to alcoholism. It led to inverted moralism and immorality and to all sorts of other wickedness. But it began here with greed. I'm going to invite the men to come as we prepare for the Lord's table. And we always prepare for the Lord's table by examining ourselves. And I want to invite you, in fact, urge you to examine yourself in this specific way. How are you acquiring wealth? Are you doing it ethically and legally? How are you using wealth? Are you using your wealth according to the priorities and purposes God has ordained? There's always, it's always good to periodically review our paradigm of financial stewardship. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Think about where your treasure is and know that that's where your heart is right now. Is it in the right place? Let's spend some time examining ourselves as the men service the bread.